We are today finishing what's been an eight-week series in the book of Daniel. If you're here for the first time, hopefully you'll be able to uh, catch up some, in something of what I say. We spent eight weeks looking at this book. We're going to be at the end of the book, which is on page 899 in these Bibles. So if you want to grab a Bible in terms of page 899, Daniel is an amazing book of the Bible, which tells inspiring stories very familiar stories, some of the most familiar stories in the Bible, those Sunday school classics of Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace, as well as those inspiring stories, the book of Daniel also gives some big reveals. It gives some big reveals about human history because there are various visions that God gives to Daniel and others which describe the course of events. This is all happening in the 6th century BC and God reveals what's going to happen over the next 600 years and into our era now, and it also gives some big reveals about the realities of spiritual conflicts, that, uh, that uh, life isn't just materialistic, material, but it's also spiritual, and there are spiritual conflicts that go on in the world, as well as physical ones. And we called this series Living in Babylon, that's because it's set in Babylon, in, in the Empire of Babylonia, uh, when Daniel first goes there. Daniel and his people are exiles. Daniel's a Jew. He's from Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, comes and uh, lays claim over Jerusalem, takes Daniel and a bunch of his friends back to Babylon. So Daniel and his friends are in exile in Babylon. They don't belong there. They're carried there. And for 70 years, Daniel lives in exile in Babylon. And part of the point of what we've been looking at is that just as Daniel was in exile, so are those of us who of followers of Jesus Christ in this world. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are in some sense an exile in the world in which we live. This is what the Apostle Peter in the New Testament says to Christians, the first Christians in the first century. He begins his letter to them like this, to God's elect exiles scattered. If you're a Christian, what are you? You're elect. That means you've been chosen by God. God wants you in his family, but you're also an exile. You've been scattered The world as it now is isn't your home, and you've been scattered out into the world. Now, for the Jewish people, for Daniel and his people, exile was really bad news. Exile was what happened as a consequence of the people of Israel again and again disobeying God and the nation as a consequence unraveling, and the final part of that unraveling was that Nebuchadnezzar came and dragged a load of them in exile away to Babylon. Where they wanted to be was in Israel. Where they wanted to be was in Jerusalem. But they were living in a foreign land, living as exiles in Babylon. Now, for us Christians, being exiles is actually good news. Because this is what the Apostle Peter says. You're chosen to be scattered. You're chosen as exiles. You're chosen to be scattered. The focus for the Jewish people, for Daniel and his friends was the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and the temple on Temple Mount and within the temple, the holy place and the most holy place and the Ark of the Covenant at the center of it all because the Ark of the Covenant represented the place where God most strongly in some way dwelt. And so the focus of Daniel and his people was to concentric rings, always wanted to get closer and closer in. To get close to God, you really needed to be in God's land, and you wanted to be in God's city, and you wanted to be in God's temple, and you wanted to get as close as you possibly could to God's ark, because that's where God was. Now, the focus for us Christians is turned entirely inside out from that, because of what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, the great 
person in the temple which hid the most holy place, which hid the Ark of the Covenant from all eyes but those of the high priest, and just once a year, that curtain was torn in two. What was that a sign of? It was a sign that access to God is now opened to all. And what happened as Jesus died on the cross and then rose to new life was that the mission of God exploded out across the whole earth. And so rather than focusing in on one place, now the Bible describes Christians, us, as being living stones in the temple of God. If you want to get near to God, you don't have to go to Israel, you don't have to go to Jerusalem, you don't have to go to the temple, you don't have to get as close to the holy place as you possibly can. God dwells in you by his Spirit, and as his people scattered throughout the earth, we carry the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole focus is reversed, it's good news. But the reality is that we are exiles in this world, and you can get weary being in exile, because it can feel like hard work being different. Daniel and his friends, they were different in Babylon from everyone else because of their faith in God. And those of us who have faith in Jesus, we are called to be different, to live differently. We have different values. We have a different focus for our lives. And it can be hard being different. It can feel uh, attritional at times. So when we come together like this, we get together on a Sunday morning or uh, perhaps even more, a big gathering, a big conference, a big event. Those moments we get refreshed, we get energized because we come together and you suddenly feel at home. Yeah, I feel at home here. This is, these are my brothers and sisters. I'm a, I belong here and there's refreshing in that. And then Monday morning you, you go out into the world, into your place of scattering and it can be demanding because you're a Christian and you're different. Now Daniel shows us how to live as faithful exiles. He shows us how to live in Babylon. Daniel is someone who is faithful in the way that he lives. He remains faithful to God, whatever happens to him in Babylon. He has incredible personal integrity. And that's something which we so need in our society today. People, men and women, who have real integrity. And Daniel's integrity is not just some self-imposed value set, but it's integrity which is based on his knowledge of God, who is holy and pure. And Daniel reflects that in the way that he lives. Daniel has confidence in the sovereignty of God. He really believes that God is king. That's the big theme of the whole book of Daniel. God is king. Daniel gets to positions of real power, but he displays real humility. There's no hubris and arrogance about Daniel. And Daniel shows us something about the kingdom of God, that not only is God king, but God's kingdom will extend to all the corners of the earth. He will rule. And throughout Daniel's 70-year exile in Babylon, God speaks to him and God speaks through him. The visions that Daniel receives and the visions that Daniel interprets reveal much about human history. They also reveal the reality of spiritual conflict. There's a recurring theme about four kingdoms in particular. There's the kingdom of the Babylonians, the kingdom of the Persians, the kingdom of the Greeks, and the kingdom of the Romans, a kingdom which extends, spiritually speaking, right through to our era today. And Daniel, where we pick the story up, is now an old man. He's in his late 80s, at the end of his natural life, and here at the end of his visions. But here, right at the end, the focus is still on the future and the focus is on new life. Hallelujah. Let's, uh, let's read it. Verse 5 of Daniel, chapter 12. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. 
One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and half a time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and at the end of your days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us this morning as we look at this uh, closing section of Daniel's vision. I pray you would speak to us. I pray that we would be wise and uh, we would have understanding as we read the scripture, that we'd lay hold of what we need to and you'd apply it in our lives. Lord, I pray for any here who don't yet know you, that you might cause their eyes to be drawn to you and see you in your truth and your love, your purity, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. And uh, yeah, Lord, speak to us again through the example of Daniel and through the vision of Daniel, I pray. Amen. Daniel has this vision while he's standing on the banks of the river Tigris. And at this point of the vision, there's an angelic being, this man dressed in linen, who's hovering above the waters. And then there's an angel on one bank and an angel on the other bank. And, well, what's that about? Well, the Tigris was a great river. It was up to a mile across at its widest points, a vast volume of water flowing into the sea. And uh, I think probably at least part of the kind of the imagery behind this, what it represents, is that God is in control of the banks and of the flow. The Tigris is a mighty river, but God controls its banks and God controls its flow. And so there's an angel hovering over the river, over the flow, and there's angels on either side on the banks. God's in control of the banks and of the flow. And that is true of human history too, which is what is being revealed to Daniel again and again in the visions that he sees that things aren't going to burst the banks, things aren't going to burst the limits that God has set in place. And this is good news. It's a real comfort in a chaotic world, that the flow of history isn't out of control, and neither is it just meaningless. It's not just that all the water's flowing into the sea for no purpose. No, there is purpose, there is meaning, and it's not chaos. God is in control. God has control of the banks and he has control of the flow. That's true in a world which is crazy and chaotic and it's true in our own lives. And so if we look at the world and we're concerned about the craziness of the world, we need to look at God and be reminded he controls the flow and he controls the banks. And if your life feels like it's spiraling into chaos at times, remember God controls the limits of your life as well and he controls the flow of what's happening in your life. There's real comfort in that. There's comfort in this for Daniel and there should be comfort in it for us as well. And part of that 
control of the banks and of the flow is that God also controls the numbers. And so we need to think a little bit about some of the numbers that appear here in Daniel. Uh, Part of the purpose, part of the reason why we have spent these eight weeks talking through Daniel was that we wanted to help coach the church in how to read books like Daniel, how to read books like Revelation, which have lots of prophetic imagery and lots of numbers in them, and we get to them in our Bible reading, and they can just seem very confusing. So hopefully, as we've taught over the past eight weeks, it's helped you to understand how to read Daniel and books like it. And one of the things, one of the features of the book of Daniel and Revelation and other books like this in the Bible is that there are lots of numbers which symbolize things, and that can be very confusing. And uh, there's two sets of numbers in this part of Daniel's vision. There's a time, times, and half a time, and then there's the two actual numbers of 1,290 days and 1,335 days. Now, what do these mean, and how do we interpret them? A guiding principle for us must be that we major on the major points, we major on the main points, we worry less about the details, the mistake it's easy to make is to burrow into all the details and get completely lost and miss actually what God is saying, the main point. Martin Luther best part of 500 years ago, said this, Daniel concludes the record of his terrifying visions and dreams on a note of joy, namely with the coming of Christ's eternal reign of glory. Whoever wants to study them profitably dare not focus his attention on the details of the visions and dreams, but will find comfort in the Savior Jesus Christ, whom they portray, and in the deliverance he brings from sin and its misery. Yes, that's brilliant 500-year-old advice. Focus on the big picture. Focus on Jesus, his deliverance from sin and misery, the joy that he brings us. Sound advice. But there are some things that we can say about these numbers. First, let's deal with a time, times, and half a time. Now, a time, times, and half a time is a symbolic way of adding up numbers to three and a half. A time, times, that's two, and half a time, that's three and a half. And three and a half is half of... Slight hesitation there. (laughs) The math isn't that complicated, so we try that again. Three and a half is half of... Well done. Proceed to the top of the class. Take a gold star. Three and a half is half of seven. And what is seven? Seven is the number of completeness. Seven is the number of days in which God created all things. Seven is the number of days of the week. Seven represents fullness, completeness. And three and a half is only half of seven. So what does a time times and half a time represent? It represents either something which is a relatively short time or something which is a time which is incomplete and partial. Now, this is a term which has also been used in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of all kinds of creatures and horns popping up. And those creatures and the horns they bear and all that stuff, they represent the different empires and kings which the book is about. The Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And uh, Jesus, uh, the book of Revelation also uses this term a time, times, and half a time. Let's look at how Revelation speaks about this similar prophetic, confusing language. It says this in Revelation 12. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, 
he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she'd be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Now, if you read that, or just as with many of the visions in Daniel, just on its own, it seems pretty odd. It's pretty Dungeons and Dragons or Marvel comic type stuff. But what's going on is that there is symbolic language, prophetic language being used here to paint a picture of human history and of the realities of spiritual conflict. And actually, the interpretation of this isn't complex at all. The serpent or the dragon, well, that's Satan. That's the imagery that's used of Satan, our great spiritual enemy. Throughout the Bible, the, the snake is the enemy, and the snake gets its head crushed at the cross. The woman, or she represents the church, and the imagery there in Revelation is just as it is in Daniel, that there is a conflict that the people of God are caught up in, and it's a conflict that lasts for a time, times and half a time, what does that mean? It means it doesn't last forever. Conflict is normal, but victory is guaranteed. That's the point. There's going to be conflict, there's going to be hassle, but not forever. It's three and a half, it's not seven. What then about the 1,290 days and the 1,335 days? The various interpretations of these numbers, none of which are entirely satisfactory. But the big point is that it's the same kind of point being made as is being made with the time, times, and half a time. It's about the times of hardship, of persecution, not going on any longer than God allows them to go on. Part of the uh, interpretation of this vision, understanding the numbers, I think is to do with the wicked king Antiochus IV, who arises, comes to power in the second century BC, goes to Jerusalem, carries out all kinds of appalling outrages against the Jewish people, and sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple. The abomination that causes desolation. What is that? You might think, well, as I said at Alder Road earlier, you might, if you've been in the top hall toilets at Alder Road, you might think it's the top hall toilets at Alder Road. That's the abomination that causes desolation. No, it's... The abomination that causes desolation is when somebody sets up an altar to a false god in the place where God is meant to be worshipped. That's abominable, and it's desolating because it stops people from worshipping God in the way they're meant to. And so this appalling King Antiochus IV, he put up a, he, he killed loads of the Jews, he desecrated the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar of God and put a uh, an altar of Zeus in there. The abomination that causes desolation, Antiochus is a picture of antichrist-type figures people who stop or try to stop the people of God from worshipping. But the persecution will not go on one day longer than God allows. You're not going to get to day 1,336 with this stuff. It's going to stop at day 1,335, whatever that means. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus speaks in similar languages, similar language and makes similar warnings and also encourages us in how to respond. In Matthew 24, Jesus quotes from Daniel. Jesus talks about the abomination that causes desolation. 
And there Jesus is probably at least in part talking about what's going to happen a few years later in AD 70 when the Romans come and they desolate and desecrate the temple and destroy Jerusalem. But Jesus is also in some way, I think, looking ahead to all the desolations that come through all the ages when wicked people set themselves up as antichrists and seek to stop the worship of God and seek to persecute God's people. How are we to live in the face of such things? Jesus says, Matthew 24, 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved and it will be good for that servant whose master finds him working when he returns. What do you do between days 1,290 and day 1,335? How are we to live? We're to stand firm, we're to keep working. And so let's look at some of the applications to us of Daniel's vision here. First thing is, about the reality of persecution. Much of the book of Daniel, much of the book of Revelation, much of what Jesus says in Matthew 24, warn believers about the reality of persecution. Now, there are two problems in this for us. The first problem is that in the UK, thank God, we do not experience persecution of this sort, and so it can be difficult for this to feel real to us. The second problem is that we can read something like Matthew 24 or Daniel or Revelation and we can get irrationally scared about what might happen to us. And so we need to both feel the reality of the warning but not descend into an irrational panic. Now, the reality is that for a long time in the UK, it has been possible to live as a Christian as though you're not an exile, as if this really is our home. That's the season that we have been in, but seasons change. New York pastor Tim Keller describes four seasons in the life of the church. He talks about how there is a season of winter. This is when the church faces real hostility. There's real tangible persecution. That's the situation now in much of the Islamic world. It's the situation in North Korea, other parts of the world. The church is under incredible pressure. People often literally paying with their lives for their faith. There's then the season of spring. This is when the church is still in battles, but there's life just bursting out. It can't be contained, and it's growing. And this is what we see particularly in China at the moment, where there's still opposition. Sometimes the government clamps down on believers, but tens of millions of people are responding in faith in Jesus Christ in China. They're in spring. Hallelujah. There's then summer. This is when the church is highly regarded by the culture at large, where the church, in a sense, becomes part of the wider cultural scene where the views of Christians are respected and where laws are framed in response to Christian values and all that kind of stuff. And in some parts of the world, parts of South America, parts of Africa, that's a bit more like that now. And then there's autumn, where the influence of the church declines and believers in Jesus become increasingly marginalized in the post-Christian world. And that's where we are in Europe and in the States. Now, it's always summer somewhere, and it's always winter somewhere else. There's always somewhere that the church is thriving, and there's always somewhere that the church is suffering. And in our context, where things are a little bit more autumnal at the moment, we need to get ready for things to become more autumnal yet, which means that we need to learn to be extremophile disciples. We need to be those disciples who can thrive in extreme conditions. But at the same time, we shouldn't be paranoid about this because the reality is that in the UK, as citizens in general, Christians in particular, we enjoy and know extraordinary freedoms and liberties still. And actually, I think the challenge of the warnings of persecution we see in Scripture for us at the moment where we are 
is primarily to pray for those Christians in parts of the world who are in winter, to pray for our suffering brothers and sisters who really are experiencing the fires of persecution. Second application for us is to crack on. Twice here, the angel says to Daniel, go on your way. Crack on, Daniel. Go on your way. Now, much has been revealed to Daniel. He's now in his 80s. He's been around the block. He's seen a lot of life. But this is the final instruction to him. Go on your way. Crack on. A lot has been explained to Daniel about what's going to happen. But not everything. There's still gaps in his knowledge. And so he says here, I heard, but I did not understand. He's seen so much. He's been around forever. He should know everything, but he doesn't. He doesn't understand everything. Um, And a lot's been revealed to us, but not everything. But you and I know enough to crack on because enough has been revealed to us and we know how the story ends. We know the great narrative sweep of the salvation story. We understand why the world is as it is. We understand the story. It's because God created human beings to know him and be like him and be in relationship with him and to know his love and to love him. And human beings chose, rather than that relationship, to break relationship with God. That didn't only break relationship with God, that broke relationship between human beings, and it broke relationship between us and even the world. And that's why the world is in a mess, because relationship is broken. We're not in relationship with God as we should be, we're not in relationship with each other as we should be, and we're not even in relationship with the world as we should be. That's why there's a mess. That's why turtles are dying with plastic straws stuck up in their noses. That's why an eight-year-old girl in India gets raped and murdered out of some kind of sectarian violence. It's why all the craziness in the world happens. It's why the mess in our lives goes on. It's because of that. We understand that story. But we know that's not the end of the story. We know that God was determined that that's not how it should be. And so God again and again reached out, connected with individual human beings and groups of people and said, I want you, I want you to be in a relationship with me. And as a culmination of that salvation plan, sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who lived amongst us and died for us. Why did he die? In order to fix the problem of our sin, of all our brokenness. That on the cross, Jesus carried that relational mess. He killed it on the cross so that people like you and me could come back into relationship with God. And if we're in relationship with God, we can have right relationship with one another, and we can even have right relationship with the world. That's the whole point. And God is working out that salvation plan now. And where that's going to end is that Jesus will return. He will reign over all things. He will make all things new. And there won't be turtles with plastic straws at their noses. And eight-year-old girls won't get raped and murdered. And all the other mess and brokenness that happens in life will be swept away. We know that. And that's enough to crack on with. So don't become discouraged and fail to persevere. Whatever your age, Daniel was in his 80s, whatever your age, whether you're 80 or 18, whatever your context, whatever your gifts, whatever your position in life, crack on. Third application is to make disciples. It says here in verse 10 that many are going to be made pure. The Lord has many people that he wants to gather to himself. And now commission those of us who are already disciples of Jesus is to make more disciples of Jesus at the same time there will be those who oppose the message it says the wicked will continue to be wicked in Revelation 22 it says the same thing that the one who does wrong continue to do wrong that the vile person 
continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. What does this mean? It means that there's a sense in which as we go on our mission, our adventure of faith, calling people to follow Jesus, we need to be kind of spiritually sanguine. To be sanguine is a, is a personality type where you always to the upside of stuff, where the glass is always half full rather than half empty, where you tend not to get overly stressed. And Hobbes is a great example of a sanguine kind of personality. It's a great personality to have. Always to the upside, always positive. It's really difficult to get a sanguine person down. If that's you, praise God. I'm fortunate to be married to one as well. Lots of us aren't like that by nature. If you are, you're blessed and you're a blessing to us. Now, being spiritually sanguine doesn't mean we become fatalistic, but there should be a kind of a relaxed peacefulness about us. We're called to steadily going on making disciples. And if the wicked carry on being wicked, well, yeah, that's going to happen. Don't get too stressed about it. Make disciples because God is going to make many pure. Don't worry too much about those who are determined to pursue their wickedness. The fourth application for us is that we're to live wisely. It says that the wise will understand. Now, like Daniel, we don't get to understand everything, but the wise understand that wisdom is following God, and so we're to choose wisdom. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's a wise decision. What is wisdom? It's to continue following Jesus. If you don't yet know Jesus, what would be wisdom for you? It would be to make the choice to follow Jesus. That's wisdom. And Daniel is a model of wisdom. He's wise. He's just a wise man. The advice he gives to rulers is wise. The integrity with which he conducts himself is wise. The faithfulness with which he pursues God's purpose, that's wise. And wisdom is about living faithfully before God. That's the way to blessing. That's the way to live a good life. And whatever kingdom we're living in, whether it's Daniel living in Babylonia, or whether it's the first believers living in Rome under Nero, or whether it's us living under Boris or whoever it might be, choose wisdom, which is to follow Jesus. And the final application is to see that the whole thing is about moving from exile to exodus. Daniel begins in exile as he and his friends are taken, ripped out of Jerusalem and dragged to Babylon. It ends in Exodus because Daniel is told he's going to rise and receive his allotted inheritance. You will rest and at the end of your days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Daniel at this point is old. He's in his 80s. He's going to die. But death for the people of God is actually rest. It's not something to be feared. It's Rest, and then resurrection is promised. Daniel, you're going to rest, but then you're going to rise. Amazing. We have this certainty of a resurrection, which for us is made even more certain than it was for Daniel, because we have seen the first fruits of resurrection. This is how the Apostle Paul describes it to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. Jesus is the one who died but came back to life. The grave is empty. There's no body. There's no bones. Jesus lives. Because he, the first fruits of resurrection, lives, we have this confidence that we will follow on, that we'll also know the fruit of resurrection life. Hallelujah. There's a reward for God's people. Daniel begins in exile. 
He ends in Exodus. At the end, the faithful people of God will receive their inheritance. We will enter the promised land. And so as we come to the end of Daniel, what do we see? Well, there's more for us here. The theme we're particularly leaning into as a church this year is more. This word that uh, was spoken to us about looking for more, more of God's blessing, more of God's presence. And as we look at the life of Daniel, we can see there's more, there's more for us. We need more, more Daniel-like humility in our worlds where so much is boastful and arrogant and foolish. We need more Daniel-like humility. We need more Daniel-like trust. He was a man who knew what it was to trust God and find God trustworthy. We need more Daniel-like commitment. Daniel was committed to the cause. He was committed to his mission. We need more Daniel-like integrity to walk as those who are pure before God and before men and women. We need more Daniel-like courage. There's no way that Daniel was a wimp. He was brave. He was willing to face the lions. If that was what it took, we need Daniel-like courage. We need more Daniel-like faithfulness. Daniel didn't waver in his commitments to his Lord, and we need more Daniel-like prayer. Daniel knew how to pray. We need to be a praying people too. And so, laying hold of all that God has for us in this age. Like Daniel, we anticipate the age to come. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this amazing book and this amazing man of Daniel from whom we can learn so very much. And uh, Lord, I pray for us here. I pray that we would be a church full of Daniels, those who do live before you with trust and faithfulness and integrity and courage and prayerfulness. I pray, Lord, that we would push into more. We'd be more like Daniel and that we might more reflect you. And I thank you for this hope we have, that even now as we live in exiles in this world, that's good news. And the even more amazing news is you're going to carry us from exile into Exodus. There will be an inheritance for us that we will reign for you. In you we will possess all things. Thank you, Lord, that the three and a half days that we live in now, the time, the times, and the half the time we're now in are not forever, but you're going to bring us into the completeness, the fullness of life and reign with you. That we anticipate, that we savor, and we praise your name, King Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and worship.